Revelation 21. So Revelation 21, today we are picking it up in verse 9, going to the end of the chapter. Revelation 21 and 22 are what we call the eternal state, meaning heaven, meaning paradise restored and regained, God making all things new. And so uh, we are continuing, really, with last week's study, where uh, in 21, 1 through 8, uh, was sort of our introduction into this, and then beginning in chapter 9, we see the new heavenly city, the glory of Jerusalem, the city of God. So if you're there with me, Revelation 21, uh, I'll begin reading in verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, filled with the seven last plagues, came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. And the city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city... With the reed, 12,000 furlongs, its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. And the construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper. The second... Um, Sapphire, the third Chalcedony, the fourth Emerald, the fifth Sardonyx, the sixth Sardius, the seventh Chrysolite, the eighth Beryl, the ninth Topaz, the tenth Chrysoprase, the eleventh Jacinth, and the twelfth Amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass." But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple, and the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it, and the Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, there shall be no night there." And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, but there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. May you take your word and minister it to our hearts and speak so clearly, Lord, and encourage us and build us up in our most holy faith and complete things that are missing and lacking in our understanding and bring 
motivation for living out of this amazing description of the holy city, which will be our home. And so, Lord, we look forward to what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. When you read this passage, I don't know about you, but aren't you just a little bit blown away at the home that God has prepared for us? Remember Jesus said before he left, he says, I will go and prepare a place for you. And he describes here in this chapter the place that he's described for us, that he's prepared for us. And I want you to try and gather in your mind this morning as we consider uh, what's going on here in this passage. I mean, God gives us specifications. I mean, you sort of get a sense that, that, that God is an architect, that he's an engineer, and he's giving us all these dimensions, and he's trying to help us understand something. That the place he's prepared for us is so glorious, it's so magnificent. And then we see elements perhaps of God as an artist because he brings all these stones in and we'll talk about them. And he he sprinkles it with color. And God does something that only he can do. He takes uh, something and, and makes it perfectly clear, crystal clear, like diamonds. And then he gives it hues like gold and green and blue and yellow and purple. And he is going to make it the most amazing place. And I, I, I thank John, yet at the same time I would not have wanted to have his job as the angel was showing him this th- these things and he's going, write this down, write this down. And John's like, how do I describe this? How do I paint this picture with words so that we can understand what we're going to see? And I hope you understand this morning as we go through this, the amazing detail that God has gone through to give a picture to us of what our life with him is going to be like. He wants us to know. He wants you to know the kind of place that he's prepared that will far outshine anything you and I could ever imagine as a dream home. Anything we can imagine here on this earth pales in comparison. (coughs) You remember back in uh, chapter Chapter 21, verse 2, it says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. As we go along here, he will tell us that the bride is the city. And we'll get into that and understand what he's talking about there. This eternal city is not only the home of the bride, it is the bride. And remember, a city, like a church, is not the building it's the people. In verse 9, as we started out here, the new Jerusalem, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. I would imagine, although the angels are, you know, given over to do whatever God says, that this angel and all of the angels who had the unpleasant job of bringing judgments and bowls of wrath as they did it. I'm sure just like a parent disciplining a child, there was no pleasure in that for this angel. But he's being given sort of an additional task of having brought uh, the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, which were the most destructive and the most harsh, came to me and talked with me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. You know, if we don't have a a perspective, if we don't have hope for what lies ahead, 
then we can easily get lost in what we face here on this earth, can't we? Especially when things get very difficult, especially when there's financial difficulty, especially when there's health issues, especially when we're diagnosed with a disease. You know, I was thinking about uh, my parents and, and Virginia's dad over this last 15 months or so as we went through this with them and you know, sat by their bed and watched them die and held their hand and listened to them breathe their last breath. And, you know, it's overwhelming to go through that. But this angel says, come, I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. Remember earlier, just a couple of chapters ago, we were told that the bride made herself ready for her groom. And so this is now the place. You know, we've already had the marriage supper of the lamb which was the introduction into the place that he's prepared for his bride, for us. And it says here in verse 10, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. I love what this angel did here. He, he, he grabbed John, as it were, took him away in the spirit up on a high mountain to give him a perspective. And as we describe this city and go through the dimensions, you'll understand why he pulled him back to give him perspective on what God was bringing down to the earth in the form of this new heavenly Jerusalem as he was bringing it out of heaven to this new earth. And he said that this uh, was the sending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. So he's trying to describe to us the quality of the light that God is bringing into this city. Now remember, all through the Bible, all through the scriptures, uh, the juxtaposition of light and darkness is made plain to us, not just philosophically, but from the point of view of truth. And scripture describes our salvation experience, as we heard this morning, as coming out of the darkness into the marvelous light of the glorious gospel. And here we are being given a description, we're sort of breaking the ice as it were, describing what this light, this glory of God was like. It's like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Some people have thought, at least from the, heavenly, from the earthly perspective, that a jasper was more greenish, but here it's being described in heaven as a perfectly clear, clear as crystal quality. And then in verse 12, also, she had a great high wall, this city, with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. So God is beginning to describe to us here the magnificence of this city, and he is going to pull everything together from all of history and build it into this city. And we see here that he has the number 12, and the number 12 follows through here a number of times. We'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. But 12 in God's economy is always the number of perfect government. You know, God has these numbers. We've been talking about sevens as we've been going through the book of Revelation, the number of perfection or completion. Here, the number 12 is used quite a bit, the number of perfect government. And so she had a, a great high wall with 12 gates, 12 angels at the gates, and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. The city's description follows the pattern of cities with which John's readers were familiar. Foundations, walls, 
and gates. The foundations speak of permanence in contrast to the tents in which pilgrims and strangers lived while they were on the earth. The walls and the gates speak of protection. God's people will never have to fear any enemies. Angels will be at the gates acting as sentries. John is simply assuring us that all of God's believing people will be included in this city. Back in Hebrews chapter 11, that hall of faith chapter in verse 39 and 40, he says at the end, all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, but God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. And here in the heavenly city, he's bringing everybody, Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, tribulation saints, together in one place. And then we also find, as we've talked about with the book of Revelation and all of the allusions and references to the Old Testament, that in Ezekiel chapter 48, the gates of the city of Jerusalem are actually described for us. What we're not told here in this passage in Revelation 21 is how the gates are laid out and whose names are over what gates on which side of the city from the 12 tribes. But here the gates of the city, Ezekiel 48 beginning in verse 30. These are the exits of the city on the north side measuring 4,500 cubits. The dimensions are different. The, the, the description that Ezekiel's giving versus what John is giving, nonetheless, I, I believe the, the gates and the names are the same. The gates of the city shall be named after the tribes of Israel, the three gates northward, one gate for Reuben, one gate for Judah, one gate for Levi. Uh, on the east side, 4,500 cubits, three gates, one gate for Joseph, one for Benjamin, one for Dan. On the south side, uh, three gates, one for Simeon, for Issachar, and for Zebulun. On the west side, for Gad, Asher, and Naphtali. And all the way around shall be uh, 18,000 cubits from uh, Ezekiel's description. And the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is there. And what we are being told in this description in Revelation 21 is we'll find out in just a few verses that the whole point of this city is that God Almighty and the Lamb are present. And our destiny is to be with him forever and ever. We are going to be satisfied in his presence. A little point here, uh, just uh, to sort of button up some things around how people think, you know, Israel was replaced by the church, replacement theology, and those kinds of things. The inclusion of Israel's 12 tribes should settle beyond any question the matter of the inclusion of Old Testament saints. The divine intent is evidently to show that the new Jerusalem will have among its citizens not only believers of the present church age, but also Israel or the faithful of other ages, whether in the Old Testament or in the tribulation. Later on, there is mention also of Gentiles. The careful expositor, therefore, will not confuse Israel and the church as if one were the other, nor deny to both their respective places of privilege in God's program. The anticipation of Hebrews 12:22, which we'll read in a moment, is specifically that the heavenly Jerusalem will include God and an innumerable company of angels, but also the church and all other saints. Even here, the distinction between Israel and the church is maintained. So even here, 
in the city of Jerusalem, in Revelation 21, there is a distinct Israel, a distinct church. And so that should further emphasize the fact that those who like to, to blur the lines or to say that Israel rejected the promise of God when Jesus came and that the church replaced Israel and, and took its benefits, uh, there's so many passages, I think, that refute that, this being one of them. In Hebrews 12:22, here's what it says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. I believe these verses in Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 22, are a foreshadowing of Revelation 21 and the description we're dealing with here. As we continue in Revelation 21, 13, he lists out the three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. Uh, now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. You know, when we build structures today, usually the foundation is below the earth, typically. We, don't, we can't see it. We know it's there, it's, it's built, uh, the structure that we're building on top of it has to have a solid, sure foundation, but here, the foundation is exposed, and as God is bringing it down out of heaven, John sees the foundation, and now he's going to begin to describe all of this to us, and he said the city had 12 foundations. Now, as we get into describing the length and the breadth and the height of this city, you're going to have to try and imagine in your mind the magnitude of the size of these foundation pillars or stones that are underneath the city. So the 12 apostles of the Lamb are written on the foundation. The 12 uh, tribes of Israel, their names are written over the gates. And remember with me, back in Ephesians chapter 2, it says this, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. You see, that passage in Ephesians 2 was not just speaking of the fact that God was bringing people together in Christ and in the Holy Spirit and that he was using the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, meaning the word that they brought, the word of God that came through them. But now, even the heavenly city, as we're seeing it come down out of heaven here in Revelation 21, that those uh, concepts, if you will, of the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and their teaching is now becoming a literal city. It's becoming a literal reality. Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, <clears throat> Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. Amen. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. The foundation of God. In verse 15, he says, And he who talked with me, the angel, had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. 
As we understand these things, a standard gold Jewish reed would have been about 10 feet in length. So he's carrying this sort of 10-foot golden rod with him, and this is being used as a measuring standard for this city. The city, verse 16, is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth, and he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. So this city, most commentators believe, is what we would call a perfect cube, although some say this could also be a pyramid because it's not exactly told to us. Are they straight walls or could they be tilted like a pyramid? So if you like to debate those things, have at it. Have fun with that. Uh, I'm going with the cube theory. Um, 12,000 furlongs was deemed to be just under 1,500 miles. Now, if you need perspective, that's Maine to Florida. Okay, that's the entire East Coast. So this city is laid out 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. This would be, uh, and I had fun with this. This is my geeky engineer side, so you're going to have to forgive me. This would be 3.375 billion cubic miles. We can't even fathom that, can we? 3.375 billion cubic miles. Now, if we were just to look at the base and just consider from our two-dimensional minds just an area of land, that would be um, 2.25 million square miles. So take that distance from, from Maine to Florida and then just go across the country, which would probably roughly reach oh, uh, maybe just west of the Mississippi, and make that one giant cube. And that's 2.25 million square miles. Some have estimated, and this is interesting how the commentators go through this, uh, some have estimated the total population of Earth from creation until the end of the age, now obviously this is total speculation, would be in the neighborhood of 40 billion people. I've read one commentator who said 100 billion, but we're going to go with the smaller, more conservative number. So let's assume generously that half of those 40 billion or 20 billion of those people were actually saved uh, between Israel and the tribulation and the church. So now we're going to try to fit 20 billion people inside this 1,500 square mile by, you know, 1,500 mile by 1,500 mile by 1,500 mile cube. How are we going to do that? What does that work out to be? Well, if you crunch the numbers, and I had a lot of fun with this, one square mile is 640 acres. 2.25 million square miles, which would just be the 1,500 miles squared, would be 1.44 trillion acres. And if you do the math, that comes out to 72 acres per person. So for those of you who are like, you know, I want to build my house in the middle of a field and have no neighbors, you would be very happy. I know people like this. But 72 acres per person with 20 billion people just on a plane. Now, if this were like a, a skyscraper and you had layers going up the 1,500 miles, it would be even more. And the point is this, as we, I think as we see these things here, this description of the city that God is going to blow our mind with the spectacular nature of the city. Remember, let's not lose perspective. This is the place that God has been preparing for us, for his people. Then he measured the wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is of an angel, 
You can convert all that out. That's 216 feet. People are divided. Are we, is he talking about the thickness of the wall or the height of the wall or maybe both? We aren't told. Either way, it's going to be a pretty amazing thing. And you get the sense here as this description of the city is being unfolded to us that God is building this magnificent structure that will really be impenetrable, but it's not really necessary for it to be impenetrable for this is a perfect society. This is utopia from God's point of view. The construction of its wall, verse 18, was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. So now God is going to take these things that we on earth has, have valued, gold, silver, precious stones, and he's going to turn those things into building materials. Doesn't that change your perspective on what we place value on in this world? Look at verse 19. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. And then he listed all those stones out there that we read. Jasper, sapphire, chalcedony, emerald, sardonyx, sardius, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, chrysoprase, jacinth, and amethyst. Now here's a, a brief description of some of these stones just so you can see the, the multi-varied color that God is splashing into this city. Jasper is, is, has already been described to us as perfectly clear, clear as crystal, perhaps more like a, a pure diamond. Sapphire is blue. Chalcedony is greenish blue. Emerald is that dark, deep green. Sardonyx is like our onyx, which is a white stone streaked with brown. Although some scholars have felt that it would be better to describe it as red and white. Sardius is very red, sometimes referred to as blood red. Chrysolite is sort of a yellow quartz, like our modern topaz. Beryl is green, and topaz is sort of a yellow green. We're not sure about chrysoprase. Some think it's golden tinted. Uh, others think it's more of an apple green. Jacinth is blue although some claim it had yellow in it, and amethyst is a rich purple or a bluish red. So God is nothing if not creative. And he's taking this, this foundation, and the names of the apostles are on it, and as it's coming down, these, these stones are sprinkled all into the construction. And they are going to be so brilliant, and many people feel that these stones perhaps re relate back to the stones in the breastplate of the priest and the Old Testament. And then here we're told in verse 21, the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like, like transparent glass. So imagine the size of these pearls as the gate that people and, and, and you know, anything and everything can go through this gate. Well, we know that pearls... You know, God has ordained that the, the sea creatures, mollusks and, and oysters, just through an irritation in it, like a, a grain of sand, it would spin this material around it and it comes out as a pearl. And for us, you know, a string of pearls of high quality can be thousands of dollars. But this is going to be a giant pearl used as a gate. And so you stop to think about it and you think, you know, the biggest pearl we're, we're thinking about is maybe even something as big as a marble or even a ping pong ball, but I've never seen an oyster that big. But in this case, God has perfect pearls that are the size of gates that we can, we can go through, we can drive through, we can pass through. 
And so God is going to set up the city with the pearly gates. So this is where that idea, that phrase comes from. And notice here at the second half of verse 21, of the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. This is the idea, in case you've never heard this before, that God uses gold as asphalt in heaven. He takes something that we value so tremendously. You know, our economic system is built on the, the value of gold, isn't it? To a large extent. And here, God uses it for pavement. I think that is so ironic and so like God to let us know that the things we value here do not matter in heaven. In fact, God says, you know what? It's good enough for pavement. It's good enough for you to walk on. And he even describes it here, which is interesting, pure gold, light, transparent glass. So this gold is going to have a quality to it that we've never seen or experienced before. The wall contains 12 gates guarded by 12 angels and bearing the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. In the description of the New Jerusalem, the number 12 is very prominent as seen in the 12 gates, the 12 angels, the 12 tribes. And also mentioned here is the 12 foundations, the 12 apostles, the 12 pearls, and then in chapter 22, 12 kinds of fruit. So perfect government in every way. Verse 22, but I saw no temple in it for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. It would be very unusual for us on planet Earth to have a city anywhere that doesn't have some kind of temple or religious structure or religious institution in it. But here in this city, the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, there is no temple. Why? Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. You see, everything about the temple, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and even our modern-day church structures, it's all about the Lord, and we have to keep that in perspective. Buildings mean nothing. The temple meant something because the temple was a heavenly picture of an earthly of a heavenly an earthly picture of a heavenly reality, and it was always meant to point us back to God. And when you study through the elements of the temple in the Old Testament. And how God described each one was to be built in its specific purpose. Um, and as the priest came in and the order of service that he was to go through as he entered in and the washings and, you know, the, the candlelight and the laver and uh, the, the table of the showbread and um, all of those things were a picture uh, not only of Jesus Christ fulfilled in Christ, but also pointing us back to the Lord. And here in this temple... All of those things are taken away. The temple itself, the structure, is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. You see, now we have the bride living in this place, the people of God in perfect unison and perfect harmony with the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. You see, this has always been God's purpose, to bring us, his created people, into perfect relationship with him and that can only happen in this environment in this setting yes we get a taste of it here yes God manifests his presence to us as our brother described earlier in his testimony yes he's given us his word and as we read his word and he speaks to us 
and our heart resonates and echoes with the truth of the word. And as we go through life and we pray and we seek the Lord and we need God's direction and we need God's provision and God provides it and God gives it, here in this place, in, in that day, we're not going to have to ask. We're not going to have to pray. We're not going to have to plead. As we already read back in verse 4, remember last week that verse that choked me up so much. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no crying. And there shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. All of the things of this world will be a thing of the past. And in his presence, everything will be perfect. We will have no needs. We will live in perfect harmony with God. And these are words to describe a reality that we don't yet understand. But I long for it, and I hope you do as well. And I think that is the point of God giving us this description. To put in our hearts a a heavenly longing for God, to be in his presence, to be there with him forever and ever. You know, we have these misguided ideas that we think we're going to enter in through these pearly gates, and we're going to get there, and as you come in, you're going to be given a robe, and you're going to be given a harp, and you're going to go to harp training school, and then after you master it, you're going to go sit on a cloud and recline and play your harp for eternity. And we think, how boring is that? I hope you understand here as we are looking through this and as we are reading how, how God is building this amazing place for us. I, I don't think it's going to be that way. I don't know who created that vision, probably Satan. But I don't think that's the way it's going to be. Verse 23, the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it for the glory of God illuminated it. The lamb is its light. How's that going to work? Jesus is going to be there. We're going to be with him. We're going to see him. Somehow we're going to interact with him, but he himself is going to be light. Remember, there's a, there's a verse that says that God dwells in unapproachable light, full of glory. How are we going to see and experience God of this if we, every time we look toward him, there's this, this, this blinding light? I don't know, but he's going to be there, and he's going to be the source of all things. Talk about eco-friendly. Talk about being off the grid. No more bills. No more paying for electricity. No more looking at the sun, uh, you know, wishing that the earth would tilt back or whatever so we could get uh, our warm seasons back. The lamb is its light. John, in his gospel says that he was a witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, that meaning John, but he was sent to bear witness of that light, meaning Jesus. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. You see, Jesus is not just the light of the truth of the gospel, but he will be our literal, physical, spiritual, heavenly, emotional, real light on that day when we are with him in heaven. In John 3, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light. Isn't that true? And does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. I think it's interesting that when we come to the light of the gospel and conviction comes in, 
and the shame of our sin comes upon us because that is what happens. And we become overwhelmed with the shame and the horror of who we are and of what we've done. And it says here in verse 21, but uh, John 3, 21, but he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. You see, coming to the light brings healing. The light exposing our sin to God, God's not shocked by. And he sees it and he says, we can take care of this. In fact, it is taken care in the blood of Christ. In John 8, 12, then Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Jesus wants to be our light. John 12, 35, then Jesus said to them, a little while longer the light is with you. While you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. John 12, 46, I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote Colossians 1, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. You see, God wants us to walk into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then finally, 1 John 1.5, this is the message which we have heard from him, that is Jesus, and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. In the heavenly city, in the new Jerusalem, Jesus will be the light. Revelation 21 again, back down to verse 24. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. It's interesting that here in Revelation 21, when you see that word nations used, the few times that it's used here, it's referring specifically to the Gentiles not to political nations or to simply ethnic or people groups. It's interesting that in the Old Testament, when God gave the law to his people and put his, his plan and his heart upon his people, the Jewish people, that he always had in his heart that the Jewish people should take the light of the message of God to the Gentiles. Remember from God's point of view, from from the Jewish point of view, there were only two people groups in the world. There were Jews and Gentiles, even though there were many nations, many ethnicities. And here we find in Revelation 21 that these nations are the Gentiles. Do you remember back in the Gospels when Jesus went in to cleanse the temple? And he said that you've made my temple my father's house a den of thieves, you've made it a place of commerce, but it should be a house of prayer for all nations. 
when Jesus did that, he did so because uh, the, the, the people had taken the outer court of the temple, which was called uh, the court of the Gentiles, and it was the place where the Gentiles were, were meant to come to hear the message of God's grace and God's glory and that they might enter in and become like Jews in that they should become chosen people like a Jew. In other words, the, the outer temple was meant to be a place of evangelization for the Gentiles, for the nations. And what Jesus was so upset about when he cleansed the temple there at the end of his ministry was because they had taken the very place that God had intended to be used as a place of ministry and drawing people to himself and they turned it into a place of money making and profiteering. And that so angered Jesus that that's why he went around flipping the tables and you know, made a whip and he was clearing the tables. And isn't it amazing that, that he is one man and of course he was God. He went around and did that and nobody challenged him. You know why? Because they knew they were wrong. And Jesus is the light and no one can challenge light. Have you gone out in the sun on a bright day? And maybe it's so bright you can't see and you forgot your sunglasses and you're trying to do this so you can see. But it's so bright that even that little bit, I mean, it doesn't really help because it's so bright. And on that day when we are in the presence of Jesus, the light is going to be so bright. It's going to be overwhelming. And so these nations... We're told in verse 24, of those who are saved shall walk in its light and the kings of the earth bring their glory and their honor into it. Those who are saved throughout the earth, the rulers, the, the political leaders, they will come also and bring their glory and their honor into it. And it's interesting that it is described as bringing their glory and their honor into it. See, glory and honor are, are terms that are applied to God. But it's interesting how God turns it around and he says to you and me that when, when Gentiles come in, when Gentile kings and rulers and leaders come in, God looks at it as bringing glory and honor. I think that's pretty amazing. And I think we can sort of deduce from that that as we come as people to Christ and then we become a part of his church, that God sees it as glory and honor when we gather together. I believe that's why he says that whether two, where two or three have, have gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. Because God relishes, he longs to meet with his people. And I believe he promises a special blessing when we join together as the people of God. In verse 25, its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. Amen to that. No more sleeping, no more sleep cycles, no more tiredness. In verse 26, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. Again, the people coming in, bringing to God glory and honor. Verse 27, but there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Again, God emphasizing the fact that there is a division. You know, in Matthew 25, there is this a thing that Jesus told us that there would come a day when the sheep and the goats are separated and we've already talked about that and how we come to the great white throne judgment and Jesus separated out those who believed in him versus those who didn't. I love uh, Charles Spurgeon. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read anything by him, but you should. He's absolutely an amazing man. 
Spurgeon uh, quoted uh, from one day of teaching in his pastor's college. And this was a place where he was shepherding and bringing up young men to go be, become pastors. So on this particular day, he was lecturing to them on the subject of heaven and hell. And he said to these young men, he says, Now whenever you speak of heaven, do so with a big smile on your face. But when you speak of hell, your normal face will be just fine. Because isn't that the way we walk around? Wearing hell on our face? But he's saying to these men, you need to let people know that heaven is a wonderful place, as the old song says, full of glory and grace. And when we talk about heaven, we need to let people know, we need to let our face project that this is the place of hope. This is the eternal reality, heaven, the new Jerusalem, the holy city. Paul wrote these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it, but let each one take heed how he, how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day, capital D, that we meet God, the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. I love the picture Paul paints here, which again you can see hopefully in light of Revelation 21 as a foreshadowing that we build on the foundation that has been laid, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, which is built upon the person of Jesus Christ. And then he brings us this reality that we are meant to be the temple of God. While we are here on this earth, this temple, your temple, is meant to be a, a container for the Holy Spirit who is a reflection of the glory of God. And so we are to be little uh, light bearers to the world around us. And so that's what God wants to do in our hearts and through our lives now on this earth until that day that we meet him face to face. Someone is quoted as saying, we come into this world crying, we exit this world with a groan, and everything in between is helpless wailing. Well, that's certainly from a human perspective, isn't it? But God gives our lives meaning and purpose. Someone wrote, uh, one of the old reformers, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, God. Do you know him? Is the Holy Spirit in your life? Have you had an experience where Jesus Christ has come into your life? Maybe your experience would differ from our brothers who shared earlier. Maybe the way you came to Christ is entirely different, but that's why it's going to be great to have other people share their testimonies because our stories are all different. Mine's very different. I grew up in a religious home. I didn't have that kind of an experience, but nonetheless, I know what happened to me. 
I know when I believed, and I know how God worked in my life and changed my life, and each of us should have a point. Maybe we don't remember the day or the hour, but we should have a point in our lives that we can look back and say, as believers, I know, I know that this happened to me. I know it was real. And from that point forward, my life began to change because if we don't have that, if we're not sure, then we need to make sure. Peter says that we should make our calling and our election sure. So as we close this morning and come to the communion table, let me ask you, are you sure that you know Christ? Has he come into your heart? Have you repented and turned from your sin and said, God, I want to follow you? Has there, is there something that's happened in your life through the, the glorious gospel, the truth that, that God sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to come to this earth to pave the way, to make the way for you and I to have a relationship with God, to atone for our sins so that we can enter the very presence of God. Because you know that day when Jesus died on the cross and as he cried his very last breath and as he said it is finished and the veil and the temple was torn into from top to bottom, that was a, a symbol that we could walk right into the very presence of God. No longer do we need a mediator and a human priest to stand between us and God. We could walk right into the very holy place, into the very presence of God. And if you don't have that assurance, if you don't have that understanding, then today make sure. And as I close, I'm going to pray and I'm going to ask you to pray with me and to invite Christ into your life and ask him to make you a new creation. And it says in, in 2 Corinthians 5, if any man's in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are made new. And as we've been discussing here, the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, in like manner, we have to be made new people in order to enter this new place that God is preparing for us, that one day this will be our dwelling place. This will be where we will live. This will be heaven. Amen. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. And for any of those, Lord, listening who may not have yet put their faith and their hope and their trust in you, may this be their moment where they turn to you, Jesus. And they say, Lord, I'm a, I'm a sinner, just like our brother shared this morning, having that realization as we are here this morning in the glorious light of the gospel and of your presence. Lord, may our hearts be convicted if we don't know you and we just turn to you right now and say, Lord Jesus, I want to be forgiven. I am a sinner and I come to you. Forgive me, Lord. I turn from my ways, I turn to you. And would you now take me and make me a new creation? Lord, change my heart, change my life. Lord, thank you, I can come to you as I am. You're not asking me to clean up myself before I come. You do that for me. And Lord, for those who maybe need to just sort of this morning as believers come back to you, then Lord, may this just be a moment where we return and come back to you. Lord, as we come to the table this morning, the communion table, this, this symbolic reality of our union with you and your blood and your body broken and shed for us, that we might come into the presence of the Father and have this holy and this pure and this righteous relationship, regardless of how we feel, you have made us new people, new creations in Christ. May we walk in that, may we embrace that, and we thank you for that. In the name of our Lord and our Savior and our great God, Jesus Christ.
Amen. Uh, the men are going to pass out the elements of communion. Hold on to those to the end. We will take those together and then celebrate.